From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While the Gators won't be part of the Final Four in San Antonio, they are taking it up a notch with five different sports competing in Gainesville this weekend. But what makes it even more dizzying is everything happening off the field. Huge news on facilities, spring football practice ramping up, pro day for draft prospects, and critical NBA draft decisions that will shape the future of the basketball program. We'll cover all of that later in the show with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, but we want to start today with a stunning story that everyone hopes will have a happy ending. When Randy Russell committed to the Gators under the previous coaching staff, he seemed destined to be a star in the swamp. The Opoaka native thrived at Miami Carroll City High School and was a highly sought-after safety, ultimately choosing Florida over Georgia, Miami, and UCLA. But due to a shocking discovery during his pre-participation physicals in Gainesville, Russell will never play a down for the Gators and received a diagnosis that changed his life. The uplifting part of Randy's story is what he's doing in the face of adversity and how he's bouncing back. We wanted to let Randy tell his tale and begin by discussing his early years and growing up in a large family. Um, I was born and raised in Miami. Um, My mom, she was born in New York. Um, her mother, my grandmother, she's born from Costa Rica, so we have like a Hispanic, you know, background. My dad, pretty much everybody from my dad's side was born here in the U.S. Um, I have six siblings, five sisters and a brother. Um, I'm the second youngest. That is, uh, that's quite a big family. What was it like growing up with such a large family? It was, it was different, definitely. Um, it, it has pros and cons. Um, you had to, you had to share a lot of things, um, had to share rooms. Um, I couldn't, I wasn't as spoiled as I was like once, once everybody left. So it had its pros and cons though, but, um, I definitely missed when it was all of us. We bonded a lot. Can you tell us when you started playing football and, uh, what other sports did you compete in early on? Um, I played football since I was four. I ran track like a couple years in high school just to get faster, but, um, that's all it was. Um, it just helped me like get my speed up, but I haven't, I never really like liked any other sports. So football was just really it for me. Why was football such a passion for you? What what did you love about the game? Um, I just love the the intensity of it, like just being able to be physical. Um, you could just just let out let out your emotions on the field. Um, you you have the um the the, the leeway just to hit somebody and not and not get in trouble for it. So <laughs> that's just that's really what I love most about the game. At what point did you become interested in the Gators? And tell us uh, how that relationship developed. Um, I actually, um, I grew up a Florida State fan. Um, that was my dream school, but they, um, they weren't really interested in me until like later on in the process. But, you know, I even tried reaching out to them and told them, you know, I, I want to come here or what do I have to, like, what, what do I have to do? Like, I'll drop every other school, like, you know, things like that. But just later on in the process, I, um, I learned that, you know, what's meant will, will be meant. So I was committed for, I was committed to Miami for a while, um, about half a year. And, um, I started talking to Coach Shannon, Coach Bell, just a lot of coaches there, and just made just built a relationship. Um, even um, I remember I took a visit here before I committed the next week to Miami, and the coaches they treated me the same. Um, usually like when a when a recruit like um commits elsewhere, you know they they may back off for a little bit, but 
you know, everything was pretty much the same. And uh, I kept visiting. I kept visiting. Um, I began like I learned to like like the school. I love the school itself more than like the football and I, the football and everything else. But I feel like Gainesville was somewhere that I would want to stay. If I can backtrack for a second, why the the Florida State connection? Was there a family thing? Was it just something you got into? Why why were you such a big Florida State fan growing up? Um, I just I just grew up watching them. Um, like usually you would expect me from being from Miami. Um, I would grow up going to UM games. Um, I've been to one UM game, and that's because I think my dad made me go. <laughs> but uh, I pretty much I grew up watching Florida State, and, and I just I just fell in love with them. So given all of that. You talked about becoming interested in Florida. You commit to Florida, and then the coaching change happens, and yet you were all on board throughout that entire process. So tell us what was going through your mind when the coaching change happened and why you were so confident about sticking with Florida. Um, it didn't really phase me. Um, it did for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people thought I was crazy. Um, they told me, oh, you should go to Georgia. You know, Georgia was, was pushing hard. You should flip back to Miami, or you should go to Louisville, or you should do this, do that. Um, everything gonna fall apart, but it was, it was just pretty much on me. Um, I just, I fell in love with the school, the school first. So, um, I had my, my mind was made up with, with the coaching change or without it. I was gonna stay. So, like, um, the coaching change didn't really play a factor, but when Coach Money came, um, it really just pretty much solidified everything and just made me sure of my decision. So at this point, you sign with Florida. Everything is looking up. You graduate early. You enroll early. You get to campus in January, at which point you undergo the standard physical that all athletes do when they come to Florida before you can start working out. And this is where everything changes. So can you take us through what happened at that point? Boy, boy. Um, yeah, so I got here that first day. Um, I was just, I was just, I was nervous. Um, my mind was, I was thinking about how I'm going to die. I mean, it's new, so um, with everything, I just I didn't even get a chance to enjoy just being able just to see all of my accomplishments and just see where I came from. It's just like I didn't even I didn't even get a chance to enjoy that part. But um, you know, I got here. You know, we went through everything, all the um, like all the steps to um, scheduling my classes, setting up my dorms, things like that. I went for the physical, um, the infirmary. Um, had to get an EKG. She actually took it a few times. Um, like that never happened. I had it. A couple of times before, but you know, it was really just one and done. I get out, but she said um, she probably thought something wrong with the machine, so she did it again, and she said everything was good. Um, just go get it signed off. I went to the team doctor. Um, he went over it. He started asking a lot of questions. Um, questions that they don't usually ask. Like he asks a lot of questions, and I, I tell him no because um, I never really had any like prior health problems. So um, he was asking a lot of questions and everything, and he ended up telling me that it came out abnormal. So um, they end up scheduling another test just to make sure because they. They believed there wasn't nothing because I had no prior health issues. So um, we took the echo, echocardiogram and they ended up finding out that I had a um like a like a mass like a thickness in my heart. So like that's when everything pretty much like went south from there. So you find this out, and, and as you said, you had never had any issues before. I mean, did you have any idea that there could be something this significantly wrong with you physically? Um, once they told me that that, that was abnormal, like. Immediately, I thought the worst, but it wasn't. It wasn't because you know, I felt something in the past. It just because it just, I was just scared. So I just immediately thought the worst. Um, wasn't even my mom. Cause my mom, um, no, she stayed the whole weekend. But um, when she when I got tested for the echo, um, she left. So um, so you no, know, I called her. And, um, I cried, not knowing that um, the the results was gonna come. But I called her, just telling her that and I was scared, everything, things like that. 
So when, once you get the results, I mean, how do they, I, I'm not sure how this would happen, but how do you then find out, okay, I'm, you know, I've, I've got an issue. I can, I can fix this is probably what you're thinking as an athlete, as a competitor. How do they tell you that this means that you can't play football anymore? I'm, I'm just curious how, how you, you get news like that exactly. I'm observant and like, I, I can, I just pay attention to like a lot of different things. Um, our team trainer, he told me that, that I'll be getting the news. I think within 24 hours, because the, the next day I ended up taking an MRI. So that's what really, that's when I really found out about it. That's what they got it from. It was Monday when I took it and Wednesday I called him because he didn't reach back out to me. Um, I called him. I said, I asked him, did he get it? Um, he told me, he told me no, that, um, uh, yeah, they'll know tomorrow for sure. But, um, my mom was already on her way up here. She knew Wednesday. She told me it was a surprise, but you know, I called, I called her and, um, I called my girlfriend. Things seem weird, but in, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, they're just coming here to surprise me. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Um, the the team doctor, Paul, he called me later on that night. He told me, um, come to Coach Mother's office like first thing in the morning. But in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, it's good news. Like it's nothing. Nothing's gonna happen. My mom is actually in there. They're in there together. Um, Coach Mother's in there. The team doctor and our team trainer. So um. And then from that point on, I see my mom's her eyes was red. Um, my girlfriend, her eyes was red. Um, Coach Mullen, he just he didn't look. He didn't look how he usually looked. Like he always smiling and everything when he see me. So from that point, I knew it was bad. So when I sat down, I just I put my head down and like he started telling me you know, what it was, like the diagnosis, and I just started crying. You know, one of the interesting parts of this is you were so committed to Florida throughout this process and, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, didn't waver when the coaching change happened. Uh, looking into this more and reading about it, I found out that not every school performs the series of tests that Florida does that help discover your issues. So have you thought about the fact that coming to Florida may have actually saved your life? It took me a while to realize that, but, you know, in the heat of the moment, um, it, just, it was overwhelming. So I was just, at that point, I was just like, I was mad. I was frustrated. So like, I, I really wasn't thinking about like the, the bigger picture. I didn't really hit me until about a few months later, but it took me a while. But like now I see, I see a bigger picture and um, like, I'm glad I, I made like the decision to come here. And news like this obviously is life changing. And, and I can imagine the various stages that you go through when this happens. So I'm I'm curious where are you now emotionally in terms of handling all of this and processing where you go from here? Um, it's tough. It's a roller coaster. Um, I felt like I was at my peak and then like my life just took like a whole U-turn. So I feel like I'm nowhere near where I want to be like mentally. So like, I still have a long way to go, but um, I don't know. It, it's tough though. I wouldn't wish this on nobody. Who's been most helpful to you in, in terms of that? You talked about getting where you want to be mentally. Which people have you really been able to turn to throughout this for support? Um, my mom. Um, it's just days when just I'm not feeling it. Um, I may go to practice or something. I might leave early or just things like that. Um, I'll do that and I'll call her and then I'll probably cry on the phone and she just listen to me and we just crying on the phone talking and she just tell me it's gonna be all right and then I'll be good after that. But Sometimes that's just what happens. Like, I just call her, or you know, I had a counselor for a couple of weeks. Um, I haven't really been going back. You know, it's, it's hard talking about it. Like sometimes, so I haven't really been going back to counseling. But I was doing that for like a couple of weeks, and I was helping. Um, but that's pretty much it. My mom, um, Coach Mullen too. Um, just just the support. 
like from the rest of the staff, like the whole, just everybody. Um, I think without them, I'll probably, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll probably self-destruct. So like, it just, that, that helps though. It's, I'm nowhere where I want to be still, but that helps. Like the support from everybody, the team, the staff, just people in general, people I just see walking around on campus, just everybody. Well, I know you also got a huge outpouring of support from Gator Nation, especially on Twitter when you went public and told everyone about what was going on. So, you know, you you haven't played it down at the University of Florida. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to. But can you talk about the, the response from the fans? It was easy. Um, I could be out somewhere and like I see a fan and they just they just tell me, you know, they're praying for me. And even to this day, um, just just seeing like little kids are telling me that, you know, they look up to me and. I get those. I I got like thousands of those messages, and they say, you know, they're gonna they're gonna miss watching me on the field. Um, they're gonna wear twenty one for me, like things like that. So like stuff like that, it, it just keeps me motivated. So I had like a lot of teammates that's in college right now saying that they want to change their numbers and just things like that. Just just keeps me motivated, keeps me up. Physically, how are you doing today? And and what are your limitations in terms of things you can and can't do as you you try and work through the the physical side of this? Um, physically, I feel fine. Um, I feel no different from I felt five months ago when I was in, in the game. Um, no different. Um, that that we're still trying to find out what are my limitations, but you know, I still want to be able to work out and do things like that. Stay, stay in shape, stay healthy. I know you've had a chance to connect with some unexpected people as a result of this situation. Can you tell us about your relationship with Michelle Wilson and why that's so meaningful? I told her she was, she's my second mom now. Um, she she really um she she's helped me through the whole process. Um, like when when times I feel down, I'll just call her and like we'll just talk about life. We won't even talk about the situation itself. But I just know that um she she wished that she was in my mom's position. So just when I think I got it all bad, sometimes I just I think about her situation and, and how it could have been like totally different from what it is now. So now I call her from time to time. I check up on her. I know how she's doing. Um, we just talk about life. Um, I told her I was going to go see her in April, so I'm probably going to go up, probably drive up there to Georgia, go see her, hang with her for a weekend, and just, just chill. What's amazing how connections like that come up, for people that don't know, she's the mother of a, a Stetson football player that died because of the, the same condition that you have that was undiagnosed in that spot. And I know she started a foundation as a result. So what does it mean to you to now be in a position to help her and others raise awareness about this issue so that others have the chance like you did to find this out before it's too late. I know as much as she wants to have her son back, I know it's, it means a lot for her to just to build awareness and just to help other people. So the same thing will happen to somebody else's. So I told her she has my like 100% support. Um, she'll be having her foundation out and I may just have my own as well. So just I told her she has my full support. Um, I'll continue to support her like any way she needs. I know you've heard from countless other college and pro athletes as well who've gone through similar situations. Can you tell us some of the most memorable conversations that you've had, maybe some of the people that you've heard from? Um, I heard from just about everybody, um, from Teddy Bridgewater to um, from Cooper Manning. Um, we, since, since he called me the first time, um, you know, we've been in constant contact and you know, he just called me out of nowhere, just checks on me, um, told me um, I needed to make a list of things that I want to do. And he calls me every now and then. He say, oh, how, how's your progress going on the list? And he just calls me. We talk about life and just a lot of different things. And it just helps me with different ways just to cope. Yeah, I know Cooper had a spinal issue, correct, that ended his football career? Yes. 
So is that part of this too, is kind of creating a brotherhood of people, not just who've had heart issues, but who've had all sorts of things that have kept them from, from doing what they want to do on the field? Yeah. So like you know, there's times where I just don't, I don't know how to deal with certain situations. I'll call them, I'll ask them, well, how did you do this? Or what did you do for this? And he just, he just gave me like a lot of, um, just a lot of advice that that'll help me. Like, I know that recently you've been shadowing a heart surgeon at UF Health, and now are considering a pre-med track in college. Was this something you thought about before, or has it been completely inspired by your situation? It was in the air. Um, I either wanted, I decided I want to be like either a lawyer or somewhere in the medical field. But um, it's become more clear that you know somewhere just staying in the medical field and just be able to help. Just to help others, that's it's something I want to do just from my, you know, my situation. What's been the most surprising thing you've learned from uh, shadowing the doctor? So, and anything that maybe you wouldn't have expected that you've seen so far? It's a lot more to being a doctor than, than medicine. Um, you could know all the medicine, all the terminologies in the world, but it doesn't necessarily make you a good doctor. Like You have to learn your patients, learn how to interact with them, um, just learn what's wrong with them without even asking them questions, just things like that. Outside of potentially becoming a doctor, uh, what are some of your other interests outside of football that, you know, I imagine you have more time to explore now? I've just been trying to do a lot of things and like just a lot of community service, um, a lot of different shadowing and stuff like that. I grew up, I wanted to be a lawyer, so um, I'm still I'm still even killed with, with both. So just for now, I'm going to do both, probably just try to shadow, try to intern like a lot of a lot of both. But um, like in my spare time, I'll write. I'm, I'm actually like in the process of trying to like write a book. Huh. So like, so when I'm home, I just, I just write, like write on my own, just have my own journal, like how my day went. So if I'm feeling down, I just write and just, just until I can't write no more. What are you, uh, what, what are you going to write a book about exactly? Um, just my life. Um, I haven't really gone through the whole process and I just write, um, I haven't planned out anything. So I just, I guess when the time comes, when I have the time just to like start getting the process of publishing it and writing everything, then, then I'll start like planning things out. But for now, I just write. I just free write. Final thing for you, Randy. Uh, spring practice is now underway, and you've been out there with the team trying to participate and be a part of it in any way that you can. Can you just tell us about that in terms of what it means to you to still be involved with the team? At the same time, how difficult it is to be around practice w- when you know you want to be out there? I told myself I was going to come in the spring just to help out and things like that. But, um, you know, it, it's tough out there watching practice. Um, sometimes I just want to leave, but you know, I just say I just feel like I'm letting them down. Like if I'm just leave, if I just leave practice, stuff like that. But you know, it's hard. But I just I, I learn to fight through it. But it's times where I just sometimes I just don't want to come and I don't want to be around here and just like it's it gets times like that. But there's other times where like I'm watching them make plays and watching them run around practice, and that makes me happy that they're having fun. Like they're, they're enjoying it and they're not taking it for granted. I'm sure like anything else, it gets easier with time. So as you progress into the fall, into the season, how do you envision your role with the team evolving? I'm actually not sure though, but I, I, I do know I still want to be around the team, but I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not really sure. I don't know if I can, at least for now, I don't know if I could be able just to handle just to have like a full-time role around the team, but I definitely, I do want to be around the team. Um, I do want to help out any way I can, but um, I'm not sure if I want like a like a definite role yet. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate, and certainly everyone is rooting for you. We know you've been dealt a tough hand, but uh, 
you are doing it the right way, Randy. And uh, Gator Nation is rooting for you. And we thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I appreciate you so much. It's been years since Jeremy Foley first spoke of the master plan Florida was working on to vastly improve its facilities, but now it's all truly coming together. Last week's unveiling of Phase 2 in that process made waves across Gator Nation, and that's where we began our roundtable discussion. So before delving into spring ball, pro day, and basketball, Scott and Chris gave us all the details on the changing face of Florida's facilities. Yeah, Adam, it has uh, taken a while. It obviously started with the, uh, the renovation of uh, the O'Connell Center a couple of years ago, the new academic center and the indoor practice facility. And then, of course, uh, Scott Strickland gets here and, uh, you know, they're already in the midst of what they call a, a facilities master plan. And it's been reworked some and those uh, details were finalized uh, recently. And, of course, the big news uh Last week is that Florida is going to get a new baseball stadium, a new standalone football facility, and uh, Katie Seachel Presley Stadium, where the softball team plays, is going to get reworked. And the, you know, uh, all three are, are major upgrades. I think all three are needed. You know, the one that's going to get the most attention, obviously, from the fan base. Uh, well, this is a tougher one than usual. I mean, the baseball stadium is getting a lot of attention. Obviously, the standalone football facility is one that's. Uh, probably drawing the most headlines it's something that you know florida has you know just fallen behind a little bit in that area uh in regards to uh, those type of facilities and as scott strickland said the the main area that he was noticed is the efficiency factor of the football program you know these coaches only get 20 hours a week with these players and he's saying that and it's true by the time they dress in the stadium and walk over to the football facility to practice i mean you do that four or five times a week. Uh, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes a pop, and, you know, that, that adds up and takes a lot of time away. Uh, so that was an area that they certainly wanted to improve. And it's just the modernization, I think, of the where the program needs to be. And then you take the baseball situation. Uh, you know, McKeithen Stadium has certainly served its purpose since 1988. But, again, it, this is about not only the teams that play in these. It's about the fans. It's about enhancing their experience. Uh and the new stadium is going to have a lot. It's just going to be a lot more fan friendly. Uh, it's a uh, you know the initial uh, proposals at least. I mean, it's a really good looking park that includes berm seating and food trucks. So, Adam, I think overall you know stuff that uh, it was well received. Uh, it, it's just really something that I think uh, will you know make the experience for fans and the and the student athletes at Florida better. I think the whole idea of uh, blowing up the baseball stadium and starting over is probably needed to be done. I think Scott would probably agree with me. I mean, I think Scott Strickland, uh, obviously he came from Mississippi State, and that's a gold standard as far as uh, uh, baseball programs in the country. Not Certainly not that Florida is, and of course Florida is, but in terms of the fan experience there, and obviously that's a term we've used a lot since uh, Scott Strickland showed up here. Um, but he's going to move that stadium into the groves uh, currently occupied by uh, IFAS. Um, IFAS will be compensated for that, both from the university side and from the University Athletic Association side. Be well compensated, actually, to buy some more um, land elsewhere elsewhere in the state to do their research. But now there's going to be a baseball stadium that you drive by and has that inviting look versus, you know, McKeithen Stadium right now, you you, you really can't see it. No. You, drive, you drive around, you see a, a, the back of the scoreboard and a fence that uh, 
you know, has, has a tarp across it. Uh, it's going to be more more inviting looking. There's going to be some more fan amenities about it. Uh, you're going to walk, be able to walk around without ever losing sight of the field once you're inside the stadium. And correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, we're talking all seat backs in the stadium, right? Yeah, all the- chair backs uh, inside the stadium. And, of course, that's about 5,000 seats. And then with the berm seating and other uh, just viewing options, whether it's standing room or, uh, you know, just tables and chairs, the food trucks out out in the outfield so it could seat or fill up to 10,000 people so you know those big series uh, could be a great atmosphere there yeah and finally of course there'll be shade for fans and um you know you've heard a lot of people talk about how coming out to the game and sitting in those metal bleachers in the, in late may you just you're basically a fried egg mm-hmm. so that's not going to be the case anymore i mean it's just, this is going to be catered um to and updated to the point where it's going to be it's going to be very inviting for folks to come out and, and you know, watch one of the be- best baseball uh, programs in the country. We're a couple ways away from, obviously, it becoming a reality. But by picking up that stadium and moving it out into the uh, into that grove, you now have an area where they can remember. First plan for the football facility was to build it down over by track. But now that football facility is going where currently baseball is. Everything will be together. It will be, in, in essence, attached to the indoor facility over there by the Sanders practice fields. Uh, Scott mentioned uh, about efficiency that Strickland spoke about. So all this thing is going to be uh, woven together and, and tied up in a nice bow. And the order is going to be obviously softball, then baseball, and then obviously uh, football and baseball will be able to once once baseball is gone, then football will be able to start digging in on that on that area there. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but softball is supposed to be ready for the start of the 2019 season, baseball for the 2020 season, and then football at some point after that, probably. Are we thinking 2021 is the target for that? As far as I know, that's it. And obviously there can be issues with the timeline, both in the positive and the negative. But yeah, Tim Walton is going to have his new softball stadium next year. And um, that, of course, is is long overdue for, especially with what he's... uh, what he's accomplished with that program. And it's going to be cool too to have baseball and softball will be next to each other over there on that side of campus. So again, a spring weekend afternoon, the way the schedule is stacked, you go to softball, walk across the street, see a baseball game too, should be uh, very, very inviting for fans as you guys just pointed out. Uh, let's talk about some spring football because that's certainly very much going on right now. And I know that they continue to turn heads over there. A lot of a lot of positive vibes, a lot of good stories coming out. I'm curious in the last week, uh, what has impressed the two of you from what you've seen from Dan Mullen's practices? Well, the story of this spring is Dan Mullen. That's clear just on the, the way the reaction has been from the fans, ex-players. Uh, you know, every time you go out there, you see a face that you haven't seen in quite a while from these ex-players. Obviously, Percy Harvin's been around. Uh, Q1 Ratliff, uh, Tony McCoy. You know, you can go down the list of players who have popped in recently. And uh, it, there's just, there is there's just a whole new vibe over there. That often happens, obviously, Adam, with a new coach. But I think Dan Mullen has taken it upon himself to really just get this fan base riled up again. You got to remember, he spent Tuesday night going down Sorority Road trying to recruit uh, sororities to get them back out to games early. Because he's, as he said, you get the sororities out early. Well, guess what? You get those fraternities out early. <laughs> and really, the students obviously play such a huge role in setting the tone before the game uh, in the stadium. Uh, so you want that area filled up early. And it's just a, another small example of what he's doing 
to get everybody on board. I mean, he's, he said, you know, this isn't just about the football team. This is about everybody who touches the program, whether it's fans or boosters or administrators, parents or players. I mean, he wants everybody to kind of have a, a great experience and the winning, you know, that's, that's on his, his shoulders. I think that's going to come, but right now for him, it's really about recharging a program that coming off four and seven season, uh, two losing seasons in five years. Uh, this is kind of uncharted territory and, and Dan Mullen has, has been a, just a breath of fresh air. That's the, that's the term that I get so much on social media. Well, that's how people describe him right now. I'm going out to, uh, the, you know, he opened up, a, a another practice kind of like a, that's kind of a surprise thing, wasn't it? When he yeah. opened up that practice last weekend and, uh, I went out there Saturday. It was just a absolutely perfect, uh, chamber of commerce kind of day out there. About a thousand people, maybe more circled the field and he's bouncing around, going around to people and, you know, doing his job, of course, uh, on the field with his players. But after the game, he had, he spoke to the team and he had a, a former player, Major Wright, speak to the team and he stood up. He said, go thank those people for coming out. And they all you know, the players, you know, broke up after their position groupings and went down the line and thanked the uh, the fans. And I think there's something to that in that, you know, this this team, I, I think there's a, there's been a disconnect uh, with the team as far as uh, the community and their fan base and what have you. And he's trying to fix that. And granted, uh, you know, uh, all that matters ultimately is is what happens on Saturdays in the fall. But these are these are tone setting, baseline setting kind, kinds of things that uh will help maybe um, bring back what you know may even be something of a of, of a fractured fan base, a, a, a disgruntled fan base a little bit that just didn't have much of a connection to the to the previous regime, and now maybe they're getting back to that. And it, it starts with the coach who has been here and knows what it's like to to have that uh, the whole the whole Gator Nation uh, behind you. On the field, from what you guys have seen, anything stand out? Anyone impressing you at, at the current moment? If I had to take one thing away from this spring, how much different these guys look physically. Nick Savage got here and went to work, and he's been working with these players a lot more than Dan Mullen or any of the coaching staff has. And, and these players do. I mean, they look more imposing physically, uh, whether it's uh, muscle, more muscle, less fat, more defined tone. They just look like a team that is in better shape than we've seen in maybe three or four years. And that's what really speaks to me about that is that it's happened in such a short time so these guys are just getting started so what does that mean by the fall I mean I think it means good things uh, these guys have obviously bought in on the short term uh, if they're serious over the summer and going into fall camp you you could see a lot more changes uh, by the time uh, August rolls around and you know there's there's some new players here Trey Dean Emory Jones uh, Damian Pierce uh, Iverson Clement, all these guys look like solid players, and some of them are going to get chances in their first year. I don't know how it's going to work out. Nobody does yet. I think Felipe Franks, as we've talked, I think he's handled this very well, the coach of change. He looks a lot more confident than he certainly did at the end of last season. Uh, defensively, you got a lot of uh, pieces that are starting to maybe fall into shape going into the summer. Luke Ankrum's a guy that seems to be getting more reps than we're used to seeing a defensive lineman. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of unknowns there. I, as we've talked about, I will never be one to place a lot of emphasis on what I see in the spring because then they break and then they go away for three months, you know, and come back and do it all over again. And then you really start 
seeing who's who's going to make a difference and who's not. They do have their first scrimmage this week. So by the time we do our show next week, we'll have a little bit more idea of maybe who's ahead of who in positions and what exactly, if any position changes have taken place. But at this at this stage, Adam, it, it's really still uh, just raw. And it's really like we just spoke about in the opening segment. Right now it's about kind of uh, redefining the program. Just to piggyback off that, if I may, is uh, Kayvon Bryant's pro day workout. He was talking about the the difference in the what's going on in the weight room, and this this guy knows a little bit about training because uh, Dad obviously was a uh, a Navy SEAL. He's your typical combine freak. He performed really really well at the NFL Combine, ran a sub five uh, 40 yard dash, or what have you. But to put it in context, he said, "Look around uh, at these guys and what they look like." He goes, "If you looked at us last year, we were Pillsbury Doughboys." <laughs> So, so uh, this is a guy who is who defines like working out and training, and that was his assessment of what it was before changing over to what it is now. And I think there's a probably a little bit of of Taven Bryant that you know wishes he could be a part of this, and he has been a part of it in regards to being down in the weight room and preparing for the next phase of his career. But uh, uh, I don't think what Nick Savage has done with as far as strength and conditioning can be uh, overstated. Um, if you ask me uh, about what I've noticed that it seems like Florida has Florida's going to have some options uh, at skill position, especially in the backfield. I know Malik Davis is an out. He's still recovering from the knee, but uh, Damian Pierce you know, has flashed a little bit. The freshman from Bainbridge, Georgia, uh, you got Jordan Scarlett back into the floor and into the fray. And that's not having like a, a potential. He, he may have been the best player on the offense last year. Uh, yeah. if, if, if I mean, if he and Antonio Callaway had been on the been on the team last year, those were probably your two biggest playmakers on the team last year. Now you get Jordan Scarlett back, and you know maybe you really didn't count on him. I I see some things going on at the receiver position. Uh, we don't know if Van Jefferson or uh, Trayvon Grimes will be will be eligible. Do we Scott yet? We don't know. I'm no, still waiting on that, but it's a big question mark. I expect at least one to be. But if both are, that's a tremendous. Boost. Yeah, that's a, so all of a sudden you've got two more guys that you weren't counting on going into going into the off season last year. So uh, it's just more options and more obviously to be determined as the you know as the off season takes off. Even well after the spring game, there's a there's a lot of defining of roles. If there's anything I think that really needs to be concentrated on, um, you look at the offensive line, and whenever the offensive line coach John Hevesy talks about talks about going back to fundamentals and getting fundamentals right. So uh, you're redoing your culture in the weight room and you're talking about fundamentals on the offensive line. That sounds like they're kind of starting at ground zero with that in a lot of ways. So that's a, that's an area I would consider an area of concern because those guys were beaten pretty, pretty handily in the trenches at times last season. So that's where the Gators are playing catch up, but uh, obviously Nick Savage is going to play a big role in, uh, in in improving that, that element of, of the Florida offense. Chris, you mentioned Taven Bryan at Pro Day, and I want to talk about Pro Day now, which was on Wednesday. Uh, he was the star attraction, no question. A lot of scouts came out to see him. But I'm curious, outside of the obvious, which is Taven Bryan being a freak, uh, what else at Pro Day really stood out to you two? Uh, he was definitely a freak at Pro Day. I mean, there were no other defensive linemen, so he had to do everything himself. And uh, and, and so he was being put through these, these uh, workouts at a pace that probably was a little bit unfair. Um, but the, everyone around him was really encouraging. Rod Mirinelli is a guy I got to know. He was defensive line coach for the Bucks. Talked to him a little bit after the pro day yesterday. But uh, I mean, he was defensive line coach with Warren Sapp and Simeon Rice and, and Booger McFarland. And he was the one who kind of 
handled uh, uh, Taven Bryan and was encouraging him through this workout as he was doing some of the stuff. He didn't he didn't do the the standardized stuff that he did at the combine, but I think he acquitted himself nicely. If you're asking about some other people, I mean, they're two of the biggest names at, at Pro Day didn't even play last year, Adam. You're talking about Marcel Harris, the safety, who blew out his Achilles in the in the summer and didn't get a chance to play and yet declared. And Antonio Callaway, who missed the whole season in, uh, because of that credit card uh, fraud case. So um, those guys have a lot of proven to do for two different reasons. Antonio Callaway, we know, you know, the guy was suspended a lot uh, for a lot of games, probably suspended for more games than he played in, actually. What he has to prove, he probably has to prove by looking into the eyes of executives and scouts and coaches to convince them there shouldn't be any character issues with him. And that's probably a, a battle that will go on until draft day with him. Uh, Marcel Harris is a guy who's only got on the field in the last, I'd say, three months um, to able to run around and what have you. But, man, he was a really, really good player here at DBU. And uh, I imagine he'll get a look whether or not he can get up in that uh, top half of the draft is is questionable. But I imagine he, he looked pretty good in terms of his size and what have you. But he hasn't we didn't really get to see him run around at all. But how he fares in the draft remains to be seen. And um, if you want to ask about a couple other people, I mean, the the two specialists, Johnny Townsend and Eddie Pinheiro, certainly got a lot of attention out there. And Townsend punted first, and Pinheiro kicked with Townsend holding. And I thought it was really funny. Like, Pinheiro was banging in. I think he only missed one field goal when he was kicking into the wind. And he turned and he was telling the guy running the thing, Kevin O'Day, let me kick with the wind behind me. I'm going to kick, you know, kick like a 70 yard. And the guy, no, no, we're not going to, you know, we want you to kick into the wind, not with the wind at your back. So that was semi entertaining. But, uh, those are two guys that will probably end up, uh, even though they're specialists, probably end up hearing their name called uh, on draft day next month. You know, to follow up, I think what Chris said, I mean, he touched on all the all the highlights. I mean, to me, Taven Bryan is the uh, the highest player in this draft for the Gators. Uh, Mel Kuyper Jr. in his latest mock draft yesterday has him going 20 to the Lions. So if that happened, he joined Jared Davis and uh, teased Tabor up there. Uh, another uh, NFL.com analyst put a mock draft out yesterday, had him going. 18 to the Cowboys, so that might be why uh, Rod Marinelli, the defensive coordinator for the Cowboys, was spending some time so he can go back and give him a more in-depth report. Uh, but again, it's all speculation at this point. I think, to me, Antonio Callaway, he's an intriguing one. Chris touched on all the reasons why he's going to have a lot of work to do to continue to prove that he is immature, that he made some bad decisions. And I thought it was interesting he had some of his family out there he had his one-year-old daughter out there with him. And he was, you know, he was still a, a little rough around the edges with the media. You can tell he's trying, though. Uh, so I, it's going to be curious to see on draft day if he hears his name called. But just knowing how this business works, I'll be shocked that, obviously, if he's not in a camp. He's too talented not to be. And then beyond him, I thought maybe the most interesting just story was Matt Elam being out there. Uh, if Antonio Callaway needs anybody to look at as an example of how quickly your career can go off track because of bad decisions and uh, and just as as he said in his own words, he got complacent. This was a first round pick in 2013 who played a couple of years, and he said he got complacent, uh, had some issues off the field, and he was very emotional in trying to you know in talking about getting another opportunity. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he lands anywhere because he's still only 26 years old and, and was a good player for a brief time with the uh, the Ravens. But those, those were really the highlights to me, the things that stood out. 
Last week when we spoke, Scott was in Minnesota. He uh, was brave in the cold to go check out Caleb Dressel specifically at the NCAA Swimming Championships. And I guess your trip was well rewarded, Scott, because Dressel uh, went on another history-making run and, and maybe even exceeded the high expectations that people had for him going in. Yeah, I didn't know if that was possible, but uh, you know, on Thursday, the guy goes out three times and breaks his own American NCAA record three times in the uh, same day. And you would think that he would get a little more tired as the day goes on. Well, no, he kept getting better. Uh, Obviously, becoming the first swimmer, the male swimmer in NCAA history to win the 50-yard freestyle championship all four years as collegiate. Uh, He became the first person ever to swim the 50 free under 18 seconds. Uh, He became the first person ever to swim the 100 free under 40 seconds. Uh, Anytime you, uh, you get on sports center twice in back to back days with breaking news flashes, that means you've had a really good meet. And uh, Caleb Dressel certainly staked his claim as I think one of the maybe four or five most accomplished athletes in UF history and during his time here, uh, what he's done already and what he's going to do, uh, possibly is the face of American swimming now for many years and probably one of the stars of the uh, 2020 Tokyo Olympics. But you know what impresses me even more so about him? I mean, the guy is just, he's a really likable guy, a personable guy, very approachable, easy going with the fans. And uh, just, you know, you add that to the mix and uh, you're just glad to see him go out there and handle everything the way he did. Because before the meet, you know, in talking to him, he, he was talking about how after winning seven golds last year at the World Championships in Hungary, he knew expectations were going to soar for him. So he had to find ways to kind of manage those. And he's been working in different ways, whether it's self-help books or uh, just staying away from social media, just finding ways to not get overwhelmed by some of the outside forces that sometimes can distract you. And from what I can tell, Adam, it seems to be working. Yeah, no question about that. Last week, we had an epic recap of the basketball season and a look forward from Chris. But uh, things do change rapidly in this day and age. And we talked about when we discussed what was going to happen with next year's team. The two big question marks were what decisions would John Igbunu and Jalen Hudson make? And now, Chris, they have both made their decisions, albeit different ones in terms of where they could go from here. Correct. Johnny Bunu is, will move on. He'll see what happens with him in the, in the next level. And obviously, uh, the first step for him is to get on the court. He hasn't been on a court except for some very limited, uh, individual kind of stuff. I don't think he's done anything since, uh, the season ended or certainly in the last six weeks since he went under, since he had that second procedure to kind of help the swelling in his knee, but he'll move on. So, uh, there's the possibility of, of him returning for a six year, which, was an iffy proposition to begin with anyway that goes on and uh that's no longer there Jalen Hudson uh will put his name into the uh into the NBA uh draft pool um without hiring an agent which means he'll reserve the right to be able to come back and return the team actually started workouts this week Adam on Monday both uh, weight workouts and um individual instruction and shooting kind of stuff and then Jalen Hudson is with the team working out with them he was he was doing it with an NBA ball, so he's getting himself ready for that phase. And then so he'll go through the evaluation process, uh, you know, whatever that entails relative to combines and what have you. And he'll have uh, late April where he'll, at some point he's going to have to make a decision. Once you're in that pool after a certain deadline, you cannot you cannot return. 
And so uh, um, he'll leave himself that option. Where this goes, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really have a feel one way or the other. If you asked me to put a percent on, I'd say 60-40. He probably leaves, which would leave a scholarship open for Florida to go out and either sign another incoming player or uh, find a grad transfer, which uh, may be the more logical route. But that's to be determined. And, um, again, we have, a, we have about a month before um, any kind of finality comes to that couple changes there on the player side also a change in the coaching side for the first time in a while Mike White's staff had been intact since he arrived uh, the first three years from Louisiana Tech but now uh, Dusty May getting an opportunity to be a head coach for the first time so talk about that and, and what that means for the staff going forward well he's now the coach of Florida Atlantic uh, he took with him um, director of basketball operations Kyle Church who'd been who came here with with Mike White also um, church gets his first chance to be an assistant coach, which that's the logical progression for someone who's a, a, a Dobo to go to become a, a, an assistant coach at some level and then, you know, find his way on the recruiting trails and what have you. Um, and then work your way up the coaching ladder. But that does leave a, uh, an opening on the staff. Um, I actually talked to Mike White, um, on Wednesday, got a little bit of an update in terms of, he's got a list of about. 10 guys that he's kind of looking and they're some of them are head coaches at lower levels. Some of them are, are out of work assistant coaches. Uh, there are even some guys that are working uh, in the NBA actually that he may be interested in. So the timeline of that is, is, is kind of to be determined. For example, if he wants to, if he wants to go uh, the pro route, he may have to wait a little bit for that. It's a transition time of year, both for, they got to play the waiting game a little bit, see what happens with Jalen Hudson. And they may want to play the waiting game a little bit to see what shakes out as far as uh, assistant coaches and what have you. But Jordan Mincy was going to the Final Four, so he'll probably be hit up by a bunch of uh, coaches, whether interested coaches or out-of-work coaches there. So um, we'll just keep an eye on it and see what happens. But uh, it'll all be rectified. It'll all come together. It just doesn't have to come together right away. And certainly congratulations to Dusty, a really a, a class act and a great representative of what the Florida program is all about, taking uh, you know, his first shot down at, at, at FAU, which ironically enough, the AD at FAU is Mike White's brother. So it's, That's a, right. it's all in the family. It's all in the family. That's right. Mike White's brothers are taking over the state of Florida on the AD. <laughs> Strickland better be yeah, watching out. Strickland needs to watch out. He's, he's, uh, he's down two to one right now. Yeah. <laughs> all right. For today's PAT, I want to talk about the final four and I want to talk about fairness in the NCAA tournament because there's a lot of people that already think you should reseed when you get to the Sweet 16 because you have matchups that really don't make a lot of sense in terms of who really earned the higher seed and what they get to face relative to others. And now we have a Final Four, which features two number one seeds, a three seed, and an 11 seed. Now, because of the bracket, the two one seeds are playing each other in the Final Four. The three plays the 11. Well, there's a lot of people out there that say, hey, this isn't really fair. You should reseed this. The number one seed shouldn't have to play each other in the final four. They should play potentially in the championship. So I'm curious where you guys stand on the idea of reseeding the final four to try and make it a more fair proposition. Why don't you just reseed the bracket as it goes then, if you're going to do that? You know, there's a, a 12 upsets of five. Uh, uh, maybe you have to reseed then. I, th I think it's ludicrous. I think the bracket should stand as it is. I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, this thing isn't isn't broken in any way, shape, or form. It it captures the imagination of a sports watching nation for a month. It's as good a sporting event as there is. There's no reason to tweak with it. The last time they tweaked with it, 
was when they added the the, the playing games or whatever you want to call them in, in Dayton. Made it a, it's it's okay. I thought it was a little rough around the edges at first, but they they don't need to do anything with this. I I mean I think Scott's going to agree with me here that who doesn't want to see Loyola Chicago in a national championship game playing something? It, yeah. it doesn't. I don't need to see a Kansas Villanova national championship game. I've seen that game before. I haven't seen Loyola Chicago in a national championship game, although I was alive in 1963 when they won the whole thing, by the way. But uh, I think that would be uh, uh, an incredible story. And there's no reason to fix something that's not broken. No, I totally agree. As uh, I think my father once said, life's not fair. So for all those people complaining. <laughs> did, he, did he coin that for us? <laughs> I, think he, I think he did. I, I think he's going to be credited with that on his headstone. But uh, I think more than anything, Adam, in this day and age we live in, everything is over-scrutinized and analyzed because, hey, you got to have something to talk about on talk radio and to write about on websites, right? But, yeah, I mean, the, like Chris said, the, it's don't fix something that's not broken. You know what? It, the only thing that keeps my interest in the Final Four is Loyola of Chicago. I don't care about Kansas. I don't care about Villanova. But if Loyola of Chicago, I'll watch their game on Saturday. And if they win, I'll be watching that Monday night game. I'll be rooting hard for Sister Jean and that, that school to, uh, to win the title over Kansas or Villanova. All I know is on December 6th, I had a lot of people fire at me on Twitter about how embarrassing Florida's loss was to uh, Loyola Chicago <laughs> yeah. here. Sister Jean didn't make that trip. I thought it was great. Sister Jean was asked before the, the, the regional final what she gave up for Lent. She said, losing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The woman is very sharp, Snow. That's going to make a uh, book if they win it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no question. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much as always. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Check out FloridaGators.com for all the info you need on the plethora of events and games for this weekend, including baseball, softball, women's tennis, lacrosse, and the Florida Relays. Then come back next week for an all-new episode of Gator Tales where we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you somewhere on campus.